for 2020 and now for 2021, you may give and deduct up to 100% of your adjusted gross income. So you can eliminate your federal tax liability through charitable giving this year. From Ray and Associates Studio, this is Unsuitable, a management and financial services podcast for entrepreneurs, tenured business leaders, and others who are ready to look beyond the suit and tie culture for meaningful, measurable results. I'm Doug Hauser. On this weekly podcast, thought leaders and business professionals break down complicated and mundane topics and give you the tips and insight you actually need to grow as a leader while helping your organization to grow and thrive. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss future episodes. And if you want access to even more information, show notes, and exclusive content, visit our website at www.raycpa.com slash podcast and sign up for updates. Charitable giving in 2020 looked a lot different than anyone could have expected. Policy changes, tax updates, and a larger share of household giving than the preceding year all played a role. Today, Laura McDonald, principal and founder of Benefactor Group, is here to provide insight into what she witnessed as a leader in the nonprofit space during 2020 and what opportunities nonprofits and individuals alike might want to consider in 2021. Welcome to Unsuitable, Laura. Thank you, Doug. Great to have you on. As always, this is a, a topic that we should all uh, certainly pay more attention to, particularly in, in these times where we've got a lot of folks uh, out there in need. So obviously so much unexpected in, in 2020. Give us a, a, a snapshot, taking a look back um, at, at what happened with, with COVID and how that impacted what, what opportunities are there for, for helping folks. Uh, you know, a couple of things. Uh, the, the formal counting of philanthropy doesn't come out until June of the next of the following year. Right. So we won't know exactly what happened in 2020 until June of 21. Uh, but we do have a few indications of what might have happened and how it compares to what happened in 2019, when about uh, $450 billion was given to Americans' nonprofit organizations by individuals, corporations, and foundations. And about 56% of American households participated in charitable giving in 2019. Now, in 2020, what we saw um, was uh, really fascinating. As the pandemic took hold and the economic hardships became apparent, I know we were working with a number of organizations right at the front line of providing services, whether that was healthcare or uh, food and shelter. And what we saw was that the number of donations that they received grew enormously. Wow. There was an enormous outpouring of support to food banks and homeless shelters. Uh, and then in the summer, as we became aware of this moment of racial recognition, re reckoning, we also saw an outpouring of support to um, the Urban League or uh, HBCUs. And so I suspect what we're going to see is that a higher proportion of American households participated in charitable giving in 2020, after years and years of a steady decline, I think that we've seen at least a temporary reversal in that trend. That's great. I, yeah. I can tell you, we were talking to food banks that were getting checks after the pandemic uh, relief checks arrived. They were getting gifts of $1,200. 
you know, it was exactly the amount of the relief check. And it was because those households knew that they were fortunate to be in a position that they didn't need the money. And so they were sharing it. It was really heartening. Yeah, that's that's really wonderful to see. What what are some of the the shifts beyond uh, what you talked about? Certainly, uh, organizations that were more at the forefront and and all of that. But any overall shift in kind of the thinking or or planning part of it as people get beyond you know just the crisis mode and and try to think ahead in terms of okay, how do we really have the greatest impact and and where can we help? So a, a few things that I've noticed, um, just a, a potpourri of trends. One is what's being called now trust-based philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the best example of that was the enormous giving from uh, Mackenzie Scott at the end of the year. You know, she made several uh, seven and eight figure gifts, totaling several billion dollars, about $4 billion. And she gave those gifts to food banks and homeless shelters and United Ways and um, urban leagues with no strings attached. So that's why it's called trust-based philanthropy. It's because she felt that the best thing that she could do was allow that organization to figure out how they can best respond to the community's needs rather than, you know, putting her own spin on things. So a trust-based philanthropy um, from, you know, eras when donors want to know exactly how every penny of their um, Mm. gift is. And I know from the inside of a nonprofit, a dollar that is given like that is worth sometimes twice as much as a dollar that has strings attached. Like you must spend it on buying food. You can't spend it on the trucks that get the food to the food pantry and you can't spend it on the staff who drive the trucks and you can't spend it on the heat for the building, only food. So, so trust-based philanthropy is one. The other thing that we see have seen is that there's another data point only when a, when a donor makes a gift to a nonprofit organization for the first time, there's only a 20% chance that they'll ever make a second gift. Wow. You know, and as with any business model, retention, customer retention, donor retention um, makes the model more efficient. And what we've heard from a lot of organizations is that a donor made a first gift to the food bank, a donor made a second gift to the food bank, donor signed up for monthly giving at the food bank, you know, and so that kind of uh, resilience sticking with the organization over the long haul, that's going to be enormously helpful to those. And then a final thing that we saw, there's a whole study of disaster-related philanthropy. What happens when somebody gives in the wake of a, a natural disaster? And there's some thinking that what we're in now is just a slow-motion disaster. It is a slow-motion disaster. And that the giving is similar in that, you know, if you were traditionally a supporter of the ballet, you're still given to the ballet and you carved out more room in your giving budget to support the food bank or the YWCA or Planned Parenthood, what have you. And so it's interesting. It will be interesting to see whether or not this also results in a long-term increase of the percent of just uh, gross domestic product that is given through philanthropy. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. You get into this, uh, kind of philosophical discussion. This this really piques my interest because you mentioned that overall prior to, to the pandemic that charitable giving had been declining for a number of years uh, overall in terms of percentage. Is that correct? Yeah. Do- so we say dollars up, donors down. Yeah. So yeah. the amount that's given has been increasing, uh, uh, increasing consistently. The only slight decline that we saw, and it was slight, was during the Great Recession. 
Um, when the equity markets dropped 40%, charitable mm-hmm. giving dropped 4%, and it dropped about the same amount two years in a row. Only time that's ever happened. But since then, it has uh, regained everything it lost and continued its climb at about 4% per year. But the number of donors has been declining, and that's not healthy. You know, that yeah. it's that giving, like many things in our economy, have become has become concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer donors. It's also that's, riskier for the nonprofits. You know, you miss one of those big gifts, and it takes a whole lot of small ones to make up for it. Well, that 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 was going to be kind of the the point I was leading to is that it plays into wealth distribution, right? Because that's obviously been exacerbated over, you know, the previous several decades and and become even more concentrated through the pandemic. And that that is the risk I, I see. You you've got, you know, all your eggs in in uh, you know, one basket, so to speak, or very few baskets. It is is more risk. Um so, you know, hopefully we can do some things to kind of reverse that that trend. Yeah, I, I I think we can. One is um there, there's talk about democratization of philanthropy. And I'm not even sure philanthropy is the right word to use if that's the conversation we're going to have. I Just this morning, I had a young woman say to me that she thinks of philanthropy as something rich people do. Mm. You know, And so we need to get back to a, a system in which gifts of every size are recognized and, and are uh, thanked and appreciated, not just the, you know, it's great that Mackenzie Scott got those headlines for her billions of dollars of giving. But let's make sure we're not crowding out the person for whom $250 is a sacrificial amount. It's a huge thing, obviously. Yeah. Now, do you do you think some some part of that is also um, you know the decline over the same period of time of uh, religious belief? Exactly. You nailed it. That's exactly. There's a very strong correlation. We can't say causation, but correlation between the decline of, of participation. The, per, the percentage of households that participate in weekly worship of any faith, weekly worship, and the percentage of households that participate in charitable giving. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, you know, and, and for many of us of a certain generation, we learned through, you know, taking our uh, offering envelope to church on Sunday or to, to temple or um, to the mosque. And so what's what replaces that in American society if uh, families aren't going to church in the same numbers anymore? Yeah, difficult, uh, difficult topic certainly to to deal with. Um, let, let's get into our our world a little bit, Ray and Associates. How, what about tax impact? What if, what do you think uh, of you know philosophically? What have you seen? Obviously, the the huge increase in the standard deduction a couple of years ago was thought to you know maybe negatively impact again your middle income uh, givers. Uh, what, what what's your thought there? So uh, it used to be that about 30% of American households itemized their tax deductions. Now, because of the change from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it's really only about 5% of American households that will itemize their charitable deductions uh, because you have to add up your state and local taxes capped at $10,000, your mortgage deduction, which for all practical purposes is capped at $7,500. So unless your charitable giving is at least $7,500, there's no point in filing any kind of uh, deductions. You might as well just do the uh, the easy form. Mm-hmm. So we do believe, and and it's interesting because it's not the primary motivation for giving, usually the charitable deduction, but it's part of the calculation of when and how much and how to give. And so, yes, it created a, uh, a headwind. 
Yeah, there's some of this theory that you know, obviously you stack those and and try to concentrate them. You know, maybe every third year or something like that. Yeah, um, I know that there's been a lot of talk of what's called bundling and yeah. um, maybe or maybe giving to a donor advised fund one year and then using that to do your annual giving for the next two or three years. There's very little data to say that that is being widely adopted. Yeah, interesting. As, as we move and, and start to think, you know, post-pandemic, do you really see some philosophical change in, in the way people will, will think and the types of organizations they will support? Or do you, do you think it will pretty much revert to, to where we were previously? Well, you know, it depends um, on, I guess, the data-driven answer would be that in the past. So, for example, if we go back to the Great Recession, where uh, many donors shifted their giving to human services. Human, giving to human services never declined during the Great Recession. Uh, giving to higher ed and giving to the arts and culture did decline. That's where the big declines were. But eventually, donors shifted their interests back to their core charities. And so, and the balance, the, the relative balance of giving to each of those sectors and others was restored. So if you take a look at history, you think that, you know, we're going to continue to see giving to religion be about 30 percent of it, giving to education being 14 or 15 percent and everything else trailing behind. Um, but I do think that there are some other factors at play here. Some of them are generational. You know, if you look at uh, surveys of younger generations and what they're interested in giving to. You know, some things that uh, like giving to the environment, giving to social justice causes, those really seem to be more of a priority for a younger generation of donors. Mm -hmm. And so that might be a long term shift that we'll see. I know a lot of our higher education clients recognize that, you know, the mega gift just for the love of alma mater is uh, something that is waning, uh, particularly as we see younger, gener younger generations giving. And so they're shifting their case to talk more about the impact of the gift. Um, to make higher education more of a cause, you know, first generation college students, uh, yeah. non-traditional students, things like that. So I, I do think that we're seeing a shift in either the causes donors will support or the way that the uh, sort of traditional causes are articulating the appeal for funds. Do you see, you know, the other thing it makes me think, you know, it, it's, um, I know there's, I have three 20 somethings uh, as children. And um, it, it makes me think that their mindset is very much more community based, whatever community they're in. Do you see much more support for those kind of local, uh, you know, based in your community or, or county or whatever it is versus some of the, say, the bigger national uh, organizations? Or, or am I maybe misreading that one? Well, the the one thing that is going to cloud our ability to see that picture clearly is the fact that the, the big national organizations are the ones that are attracting support from mega donors. You know, and so when you take a look, when the, the Chronicle of Philanthropy, which is one of our trade journals, releases its uh, numbers every year on the charities that receive the most philanthropic support, it will continue to be some of those big national charities because they're the ones who get the, the million and multi-million dollar gifts. And um, as much as the local support at a few hundred dollars a pop is the lifeblood of that local organization, it's just not going to allow them to eclipse what's happening with those. Again, it's the mega gifts that are driving some of the trends or at least some of the qualification of various organizations and who's at the top of the heap. Uh, but I, 
there's another trend though that I do think is is hopeful, and that is um, uh, political giving. Mm. It's interesting that there's a uh, you would think that oh, if somebody gave to a candidate or to a ballot issue, it's going to reduce the likelihood that they're going to give to to charity. There's a very really? strong positive correlation between the two, and given all of the activity, you know, some of it unfortunately very partisan and divisive, whichever side of the divide you might be on, but participating in political giving has a very positive correlation with participating in charitable giving. So that's one factor that I hope might help to continue to hold the line on the percentage of house of households that participate in charitable giving. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't necessarily have, have guessed that that was a, a strong correlation. Laura, talk a little bit about the uh, the health overall of, of not-for-profits. I mean, we've seen that obviously suffer mightily and and how do they uh, depending on obviously their their mission and what exactly they do how do they sort of alter their their model uh through all of this it's been so so difficult for many of them because they're either event driven or whatever the case might be what 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 can folks do there i've seen all sorts of things i talked yesterday with a performing arts organization um and they uh, obviously, earned revenue is a big driver for them. They can no longer hold their um, uh, their performances, and so that revenue has left. Um, and they can barely replace it with either the online concerts or sending individual musicians out to do small gigs. You know that is not going to make up for a full house uh, three or four nights in a row, eight times a year. So, um, so they took a revenue hit in that regard. Some of the uh, COVID relief uh, legislation has helped them to some extent. They've also done some pivots like shifting. Uh, I know of one that completely gave up its office space and no longer has that monthly expense. And, um, and unfortunately, we've also seen a lot of job loss, especially in the arts, especially the performing arts. Uh, so they're, they've been hit hard. It's, there have been some um, legislative remedies for them, but it hasn't been enough to make them whole. And I think they've got a uh, big, um, they've got a steep climb ahead of them. Uh, Same thing with the visual arts to a, to a somewhat lesser degree, because the visual arts tended not to be as reliant on earned revenue. It's funny for a long time, we've told nonprofit organizations, they need to be more self-reliant because for some reason, philanthropy is not self-reliance, but earned revenue is. Well, I can tell you science centers, which tend to have the highest earned revenue of the sort of the cultural sector, mm-hmm. because they did not have the discipline of maintaining relationships with a large core of donors, they didn't have that to fall back on. So whereas an art museum or a, a symphony or a, another kind of performing arts organization had maintained out of necessity strong relationships with donors, the donors were there for them when they were needed. And so the, the hit wasn't quite as bad. So I think maybe that will change the conversation and say, let's have a balanced approach. You know? yeah. And by the yeah. way, philanthropy can be part of, can and should be part of a resilient business model moving forward. So fascinating that, that all the things that impact all of that, you know, of course, it's just. Uh, I will say there are, on the other side of the ledger, there are organizations that have been the beneficiaries of this windfall of charitable giving. We're now helping some of them figure out how they can retain more of those donors, more than 20% of those donors. But I will say that one of their concerns is that when they release their financial reports at the end of their fiscal year, they will look like they're in pretty tall cotton. Mm -hmm. Now, what they know is that, you know, for some of them, like those who are uh, dealing with food insecurity, they've probably got a seven-year slog ahead of them. 
in serving the clients who have become food insecure as a result of all of this and will continue to be reliant on them for nutrition. And, you know, three, four, five years from now, the donation levels are not going to be the same as they have been in the last year. And But they've, they're concerned about the perception that they've got significant reserves. They know they're going to be essential, but is that something that they're going to be able to convey to the everyday donor? Right. And how, I mean, obviously you help with a lot of that messaging and communicating. Um, I was going to ask you, what are, what are some of the resources you would recommend for either individuals or, or our business owners who are, uh, you know, part of our audience uh, to really go look at and seek out in terms of where they can best assist and, and what, what the organization's all about? So if you're thinking about, you know, who can I, uh, where could my charitable dollars make the greatest impact at this moment in time? There are a couple of, uh, there's a group, it's not called Candid. It's the uh, amalgamation of something called GuideStar, which is sort of a charity uh, regulator. Uh, you can go to the GuideStar website and see a quick profile on any kind, any number of organizations and the kinds of things that they do. They're now aligned with the Foundation Center. So a lot of research and opportunity there. But I would look uh, also at um, some of the local clearinghouses. So if it's arts that you're interested in and you're here in Central Ohio, go to the Greater Columbus Arts Council website and take a look at some of the ways in which either your support for them could get, especially to individual artists, if that's what you want to support, or look at who some of their members are, the the um, significant arts organizations, the museums, the performing arts organizations, CAPA. if it's um, uh, something more like human services that you're uh, supportive of, there's a human service chamber of commerce. You can look them up and see who are the members there and what is the work that they're doing and how might I be supportive. The other thing I do is ask around, ask your neighbors, do you serve on a board? Are you involved with a local organization? If you really wanted to get hyper-local, you know, you can look at, say, you're in Clintonville, the Clintonville uh, Resource Center that serves neighbors right there where you are. And there's something like that in almost every community. Yeah, that's such such great um, advice. And, and I think this is such a fascinating topic. We could we could talk about all day the different ways to get involved and, and help. And I think what you've done today is really help folks take a step back and kind of think of, of the bigger picture, which we all need to do from time to time. So thank you very much for that, Laura. It's, it's fascinating stuff. You're doing great work. Doug, before we leave, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the uh, the CARES Act? Sure. Give us, give us a quick, uh, quick overview. So the as far as uh, charitable giving is concerned, the first CARES Act provided for all uh, a $300 universal charitable deduction, which uh, frankly is not going to, that's, you know, putting a drop in the ocean. Uh, we don't believe that that'll have a significant impact on charitable giving. Uh, the second COVID uh, relief bill that has, took effect for 2021 increased it to a $600 above the line. So every household in America can take a $600 charitable deduction. It's better, but it's still not great. The average American household that gives gives more like $2,400 a year. So I know that um, what most would like to work toward is a universal charitable deduction that's truly meaningful. And you've got yeah. to get up to at least $4,000 for, for that, for it to be truly meaningful. Or, you know, make it dollar for dollar, but after your first $1,000 of giving. Right. The other thing that some people might want to take advantage of is the fact that um, for 2020 and now for 2021, 
you may give and deduct up to 100% of your adjusted gross income. So you can eliminate your federal tax liability through charitable giving this year. And, you know, they're a sliver of uh, folks for whom that's relevant. I think it's mostly people who have uh, are living largely off of a high asset base and mm-hmm. have a lower mm-hmm. comparative income. Uh, and it's complicated. So go talk to your uh, accountant and right. associates about how you have to structure your giving to get there. But I do think that there are those I've talked to donors who, hey, they're disappointed that they're not hearing about it from their professional advisors because they do think that it's something that they could take advantage of. Um, But what we'd really love to see then after all of this, uh, after we get past whatever this is we're in the midst of, a truly universal charitable deduction above the line for every household in America. And let's get it up to a meaningful amount, a couple of thousand dollars at least. Yeah, agreed. I I wholeheartedly agree with you on that. That's great, great stuff. Well, thank you, Laura. And uh, if you want more business tips and insight or to hear previous episodes of Unsuitable, visit our podcast page at www.raycpa.com slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for exclusive content and show notes. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to Unsuitable on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now, including YouTube. I'm Doug Hauser. Join us next week for another Unsuitable interview from an industry professional. The views expressed on Unsuitable on Ray Radio are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Ray and Associates. The podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to replace the professional advice you would receive elsewhere. Consult with a trusted advisor about your unique situation so they can expertly guide you to the best solution for your specific circumstance.